Welcome to Masterminds and Maintenance, a podcast for those with new ideas and maintenance. I'm your host, Ryan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. Each week, I'll be meeting with a guest who's had an idea for how to shake things up in the maintenance and reliability industry. Sometimes the idea failed, sometimes it made their business more successful, and other times their idea revolutionized an entire industry. Today, I'm super excited. We've got George Mahoney here on the show with us. George currently works as a program manager and business optimization lead at Merck, a leading global biopharmaceutical company. Welcome to the show, George. I'm super excited to have you as a guest here on our podcast. Thank you. I'm super excited too. I can't wait to get into it. All right. Well, hey, you know, the way that we always start off, could you kick us off by sharing a little bit more about you, your background, and how you got started in this field of maintenance and reliability? So I actually got started into maintenance and reliability when I was 10 years old. My father was looking for a new career. He started his own heating and air conditioning company, and uh, I was the guy that was carrying all his tools, and it was the best education that I ever got. I actually worked with him for 27 years until the day he retired. So even as I was working at Merck on weekends, I'd work with him. Uh, if I he made me take days off from work if he was installing a water heater or a furnace. It was a super small company. I learned a lot about maintenance doing it right the first time. I learned about the value of squirrel stock when you need it. I learned about how to plan and schedule. I live in New York City, so it was really important to figure out how you were going to do your jobs across Staten Island to deal with traffic, to deal with certain jobs were. I also realized that talking to customers was extremely important, that you had to educate your customers on how they had to run their furnace, how to run their air conditioner, so they realized that they too were part of the process. You know, in, in a home setting, they're the operators. They have that saying is, uh, when all you have is a hammer, everything becomes a nail. My motto is, well, look for your nail. And there I found my hammer, and it's actually two hammers. The first one was, I learned about the perspective of a mechanic. I feel like that's pivotal because they're the closest to the equipment. So if you're working in maintenance and reliability, no system you put in, no matter how good it is, if they don't buy in, it's not going to work. The other thing I learned about was eliminating waste. We spent a lot of time waiting, maybe waiting for customers, maybe waiting for another mechanic to show up, maybe waiting in traffic. And, and it just, I became obsessed with eliminating waste from my day and from my dad's day so we can get as much done as possible. That's awesome. Hey, and you spent 27 years working with your dad. What made you so passionate to continue on in this field, in this industry? When I was working with my dad, I'm, just, I'm glad you asked the question. You know, we'd be crawling under a furnace trying to get a blow motor out. And he would say, whoever designed this is a bad person. How did they design this? We can't get this motor in or out. They never thought about maintaining it. So when I got out of college, I was put in a rotational program. It started off being a design engineer for large projects. I wanted to do the very thing that my dad was trying to, to fix as a, as a mechanic himself. And I just I realized that I didn't like big stuff. I liked the smaller stuff. I liked having many wins every day. So in the last six months of my project, I had a rotational assignment. I asked to go into become a maintenance supervisor at an active pharmaceutical uh, ingredient facility. So they put me there and I, that's where I started working with crafts, crafts I had no knowledge of. You know, I was never a welder. I, I was never a pipe fitter. You know, I did some stuff as a heating and air conditioning guy, but I never did things to the skill of the mechanics that I was with. And that's where I really took my maintenance and reliability world to another level. And I started off doing a lot of things wrong. I became a, a planner and a scheduler after I was a supervisor, and I tried to plan and schedule work without actually having any proactive maintenance at all. I became a reliability engineer, and I tried to write PMs that I thought would save the world, and, and they stunk. And then uh, in that journey, I got involved with Six Sigma, and I really learned a lot about eliminating waste at its root cause. And then I also became involved with something called defect elimination, which I became absolutely obsessed with. And then for me personally, that's become the mecca of maintenance. That's become the answer to almost all of my questions. 
That's awesome. I, I'm, I'm super curious. You've gone, it sounds like through a lot of trials, tribulation, you've got through a lot of learnings. What have been some of the most pillar moments where you said, you know, I messed up here, but I came out learning something, you know, that has been pivotal to the success of, of my career? Yeah, I, I got two, two that stick in my head. One was uh, at first I had some, our company said, look, we want to do maintenance planning and scheduling. And George, you're, you're really good at scheduling. So we're going to have you do this. And I did it. I wrote awesome schedules. They were awesome. 40 hours a week per mechanic. Things are, you know, mapped out to the finest detail. Things are coordinated, except I never planned for breakdowns. I never, never understood. I mean, why isn't anybody using the schedule that I used? Well, they couldn't because my schedule was based on knowing when things were going to run and not run, not knowing when they were going to break randomly. And one of the best supervisors at the site, he just said, this is garbage. You're, everything you're doing is a waste of time because our equipment keeps breaking down. So I'll take it to the second story where I was sitting in my office. This is a couple of years later. Now we've put in a, what I thought was a very effective PDM program. We'd have our condition-based maintenance mechanics go around. They do an inspection. They'd say, look, this V-belt, it's going to fail. We used infrared. We use vibration analysis. It's going to fail within six months. And then I'm sitting at my desk, and one day a mechanic comes, one of our best mechanics, and he throws the V-belt at me and says, your PDM program, it's garbage. This belt failed. I said, what? How, had we missed this? And it turns out we didn't miss it. We called it. We just never got around to changing the belt because we had so much corrective maintenance going on. So uh, my buddy, my mentor, he said, you know what we need? We need precision maintenance. We got to eliminate these defects. And I Googled it and I, I found this book uh, on defect elimination. I thought it was going to be a technical mechanical book. And what it turns out to be is this, it's, I'd equate it to like a graphic novel. I'm a big Batman fan. It's like a graphic novel of this plant manager who's living my life. And he comes up with, you know, as he's going through this, he's, he, they really paint the picture of, look, it's not about the equipment. It's not about your process. It's about the people. And they have to learn how to get these bugs out of the system and keep them out. And managers, you need to get out of their way because they already know what they're doing. Just eliminate those obstacles. You know, I'm also curious, George, like you mentioned, a, a lot has to do with planning the unplanned. Like, I know that this is a challenge that all of our listeners probably face. How do you do that? How do you do that effectively? So here is my personal advice. First of all, I, th I agree that you should actually schedule your mechanics time to 100%. I am a big believer in that. I believe that by having that schedule, it allows you to make an adjustment. Now, I'm, I'm going to equate, I go to the gym a lot. I have my, my workout all ready to go, and uh, it's ready to go. I'm going to make that plan. Here's what I'm going to do from the second I walk in to the second I walk out. But if I go in there and my second workout is supposed to be back squats and there's a guy curling in the squat rack, he's now ruined my the, the schedule that I've had for myself. But if I go in there with no schedule, now I have zero productivity. So maybe my schedule, I get eight of those 10 things done when I do have a schedule. But if I have no schedule, I might get two of those 10 things done. So it's better to schedule to capacity. Having said that, the hardest part for me was convincing supervisors, like, you know, you're not a bad person if you only get 60% schedule compliance, or you're not a bad person if you only get 80. We say, look, you got the best in the world, you probably have about 15% leeway. So use it like a cheat day, right? Use that 15% to cover all of those emergencies. So what we're doing is building in the unknown, like you said, we're not building it into the schedule, but we're building it into the allowable results. And we let them choose, hey, okay, based on the priority of the work, can you do you need to do this now? Or based on what your customer's saying, or can you push this off to next week? Again, plan for 100% capacity, but enable and allow leeway within reasonable limits for what the business can basically take in. Yep. And a really good practice is after the week is over, you go back and you look, look at all the stuff that you did that wasn't on the schedule. 
and say, why did I do this? Was it really an emergency? Was it just someone with a poor prioritization? Was this an emotional decision? And then you, now we're going back, you know, we're going to start to talk about Six Sigma a little bit, but then you start making a Pareto analysis of, okay, what is the, the behavioral reasons why we're doing this? What are the 20% of the reasons causing 80% of the, the break-ins in our schedule? And that will tell you, the data will tell you, is it equipment? Is it people? Is it both? What is it that's causing these break-ins? Is it bad scheduling? It could be that too. We've talked a little bit about, you know, Six Sigma. You know, I, I also know one of your big specialties is Kaizen. Today, I would love to learn a little bit more about your experience implementing Kaizen within your teams. What was it? How did it work? So I got introduced to Six Sigma when I was a reliability engineer. Actually, I think I might have still been a maintenance supervisor at the time, and we had mechanical seal failures. They just kept failing over and over and over again. So the team decided to bring in a reliability engineer to help us go through a Six Sigma experiment and figure out why is this happening? And we did find out the root cause. There was actually a few root causes, but I became obsessed with, oh my God, this is great. Like this is eliminating all the defects and eliminating a lot of the waste that, that has been bothering me my whole life since I was 10. So I went in, got a, got a black belt in Six Sigma. Part of that was Kaizen. So a, a part of Six Sigma is Kaizen. Some people think of it as an event. To me, I think of it as a culture. So what does Kaizen mean? Literally, it means a change for the better. Some would say it means a small change for the better. Typically, it's you look at a complicated workflow process, you identify all the non-value added steps, and you eliminate them. And then you identify business value added steps, and you simplify them. And then at the end of that, you put in some sort of control process to make sure that this is sustained and that people can easily follow it. I think of Kaizen as a way of life. What I like is when people make small improvements every single day. So when they leave work that day, it's just a little bit better than it was the day before. And if you're going back to defect elimination, that was actually the mantra of defect elimination. It wasn't these big giant projects. It wasn't a Pareto analysis that said, find the five pumps that are causing 80% of our maintenance cost or 80% of our downtime. It was, hey, mechanic, what's bothering you right now? Oh, it's the, it's the way this door handle turns. All right, we're going to fix that. Well, why are we going to fix that? It's going to make no difference. Yeah, but you do that a hundred times, it's going to make a huge difference. And you, what you start doing by doing these little things over and over again, you actually, you make it a habit. It's like playing a sport. It's like playing a guitar by repping out good maintenance a thousand times. You know, it's not one giant Six Sigma project. It's a thousand small, mini little Kaizen events. Every work order treat is a Kaizen event. Now I develop this habit. And now because I'm doing that through defect elimination, not only am I getting the bugs out, but now I'm not adding new bugs in. I love that, that you bring this into the maintenance and reliability space too, because I feel like a common thing that I've heard at least from talking to a lot of our customers is that you know, maintenance reliability is commonly viewed as the department that's just you know supporting, sustaining, and maintaining status quo, not trying to make it better every single day. What I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that's the complete opposite. We don't want to just maintain status quo. We want to make things better than it was yesterday. George, what's the best way for someone to get introduced to Kaizen? For me personally, I was lucky enough that my company had, it was really pushing it at that time. It was pushing Six Sigma. It was looking to, you know, there was the Toyota production system. Merck had a Merck production system. And it was, they were really trying to ingrain it into who we are and what we did. If you don't have a company that's doing that, there's so many videos on YouTube. Uh, there's just little quick things that, that you could pick up, but I, I, I think that might be one of the easiest ways to just begin to educate yourself on the process. 
any big success stories for you personally implementing this culture w- within your team? Yeah, so some, some pretty cool things. Uh, after I had left the, I, I left the maintenance world, I actually went into the energy and sustainability world. And when I was in the maintenance world, we had a, a real good deal of success with defect elimination. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of the Uptime Awards and Reliability Web. You know, we were big fans of them. We had worked with uh, Allied Reliability and the defect elimination team. Well, we, we had done this so well, I believe it was 2015, that we won a national award as the Uptime Award winner for Best Defect Elimination Group. And, you know, we, at the time, I think we had maybe close to a thousand defects that we eliminated at our site. We, and, and as a result of that, it cleaned up all the other problems. So I guess taking this a step back, if you're trying to fix a scheduling problem or a PDM problem, you're trying to fix the symptoms of the real problem. And it's really, there's bugs getting into your system. So we really took this approach of, okay, we're going to focus on the small stuff. We're going to fix all the small stuff. And we're going to empower the workforce to get rid of things that are bothering them every day. So we have some great success there. And then we start noticing, wow, our energy costs are going down. Our material costs are going down. We weren't even focusing on this stuff. So fast forward, I'm now uh, the global head of of energy conservation at Merck. And we say, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to utilize the same tools that we had in the energy world that we did in the maintenance world? So what we did was we said, look, we're not going to give them another initiative to compete with maintenance. Let's just use maintenance to drive down energy usage. So we started using what we called was an energy Kaizen. So imagine uh, you walk into a machine room with about five or six people. A few of them have PDM equipment and you start finding equipment that is defective, that is causing energy leaks, maybe a steam trap, maybe a VFD that's failed. You know, it could be a a clog filter. It could be anything like that. Really small stuff. And then you use defect elimination to eliminate that bug. And then nicely with that, when you combine in another Six Sigma tool, we picked this up from Allied Reliability. It was a great tool called a one-point lesson. I think it was uh, Mike Gehoff and Sean Eisenhower. Those guys had talked to us about this one-point lesson. So think about the most simple thing in the world. No one wants to read an SOP. No one's going to read it, right? You can write a 500-page SOP. But if you show me a picture on one page with maybe two bullets, some arrows, some highlights that tells me how to operate that piece of equipment or what position that valve should normally be in, now I have a win. So not only did we utilize the, uh, the energy Kaizen to eliminate the bug, then we started using op- things like operator care and one-point lessons to make sure that that bug didn't come back and that anyone walking through that machine room would know, wow, you know, that drain shouldn't be uh, normally open. That drain line should be closed. Why is this open right now? This is a problem. We need to take care of it. Do you distinguish and differentiate Kaizen from continuous improvement? Where is Kaizen? Is it part of Lean? Is it part of Six Sigma? It kind of gets into semantics. So there's Six Sigma, there's Lean, and then people will call things Lean Six Sigma. So the Six Sigma part, is it, it could be more with uh, data analytics. You're, you're looking to get a process that's, that's in control and optimize that process. If you're looking at it from a purely lean perspective, you're trying to eliminate the seven wastes that are known as Timwood. To me, Kaizen, is, it's a form of continuous improvement, as is lean as is Six Sigma. This is, this is me. There are some aspects of Six Sigma that maybe aren't continuous improvement. It's, it's one project looking at one thing that maybe involves 10 people, and it's a big bang approach, and you're looking for that big win. For me, I've tried to, I love the small things, so I try to combine all of these things together. This has been so great learning more uh, about how you've implemented Kaizen and how you've embedded it within the culture of your team at, at Merck. I know that there's still so, so much more for us to learn. 
where do you continue to go to continue learning more about, you know, continuous improvement? Where do you go for new ideas? So I am a, uh, a constant learner. I did a, they did a personality assessment on me at work. They did it with our whole team. And one of my top five traits was learner. So I am nonstop. I'm going everywhere. I'm getting uh, behavioral science and self-help books. So behavioral science to me, again, it's, it's really all about the people, what makes people think, what makes people make decisions, what makes people worry. So I'm constantly reading books on that. Uh, and what I do after I read a book, I actually go back, I take notes on it. I'll go back, I'll reread it. I'll link it to other books that I've read. I also will listen to podcasts. I'm a big fan of uh, Tim Ferriss, Derek Sivers and Business Wars, trying to get their perspective on efficiencies and optimizing things as it is in business right now. And then the other way is to always, you know, you're looking at the, the partners that got you there. So to me, the defect elimination team, allied reliability, the, the people at reliability web, your those people have helped me before. Those, those are real experts in this field. And those are the people that have, have helped get our teams to where they are. What's something you wish more people knew about within the maintenance and reliability space? I'll break this into three areas. Uh, the first one is the operators of equipment or the owner of facility. They have to know that they have as big of a part in this as you do. And it's hard to just, I know this has been said in, the, in all these conferences, you know, it's reliability is not just a is maintenance job. I, I get it. But I feel like the only way to do that is to make them part of the process. And that was great about defect elimination. We had a couple of rules, not many, maybe five, count them on your hand. One of the rules was you have to have a cross-functional team. You have to have owners on the team fixing the problem with you. So imagine if you're, you know, we'll simplify this, you're heating an air conditioning mechanic, you go to somebody's house and their, their blow motor failed because their filter was clogged. Now, if you imagine if you took the owner down the steps with you and said, okay, here's a new filter. Here's how you are going to install this filter. Let's go. We're going to watch you install this filter. And now you can maintain this on your own. You know, that, that's a beautiful thing. So they have to understand that they own it. The second thing is that's the people who make or break your equipment. You know, we, we said, uh, let, let's do these analyses and find out which pumps break the most. But that would mean that it's the equipment that breaks the most. It's really who's breaking that equipment, who's operating it wrong, who's maintaining it wrong. And you should really be looking at the people themselves because they have all of this knowledge. They have this tribal knowledge. They know stuff you'll never know and just get things out of their way. And that would be my third point is to management of maintenance people, you have to be able to check your ego at the door you have to be able to let them be leaders in situations where they know more about this than you do. And I'm going back to, you know, we talked about my career. I, be, I first started working at Merck supervising crafts that I never, I never did that job before in my life. That humbled me enough to be able to, at least from my perspective, say, you know what, you know way more about this than me. You know, you're a welder or uh, you're a structural maintenance guy. You, you work with uh, beams and stuff. I don't know how to do that. So I'm going to follow your lead. I'll eliminate obstacles. You get the job done. Hey, George, this has been absolutely amazing. Can you share with all of our listeners the different ways that they can connect with you and follow you on your journey? I think the simplest way right now is just to follow me on LinkedIn. It's George Mahoney. I work for Merck. That, that's where you can find the most stuff on me. Awesome. Thank you so much, George, for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's Masterminds and Maintenance. My name is Ryan Chan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email at ryan at onupkeep.com. Until next time, thanks again, George. Thank you so much.